introduce you to um, one of my friends um, this morning. He is my neighbor, and my neighbor, his name is Stan. So give it up for my neighbor Stan this morning. I'm in a little bit of a quandary. My wife, Clarice, thinks we should change up our guest list for our next cookout. She said, Pastor Dan keeps talking about reaching out to encourage people so the light of Christ can be reflected to others, but I don't know who to invite. And I really feel like I'm hitting a roadblock here. I know all these different people, but I can't decide who the right people to invite might be. I thought about this couple that lives down the block from us, but you know, I get an odd vibe for them. I think, I don't even think they're married. And so I, I'm, I'm not sure that we would fit with them very, very well. And then there's that guy at work, John. I know he's going through a, a nasty divorce right now. But, oh my gracious, he has to talk about it every day at work. And uh, I just, I get tired of listening to it, to be frank, after a while. And I'm afraid that if I get involved there, I mean, he's just a little too needy for me. And Stuart, you know him from on the other side of the street. He, every time you talk to him, all he can talk about is what this radio host is talking about. And I really don't like his politics. And I don't want to have to be stuck listening and go on and on and on about, about, well, I don't want to deal with Stuart. Alex, the other neighbor from the back street, he's sort of become sort of a person that everyone has agreed to not like. I mean, his dog bit the neighbor, but he wouldn't take responsibility. So the neighbor hit the dog, and Alex sued the neighbor for hurting his dog, even though the dog bit the neighbor. And if, I think if we get too friendly with Alex, I mean, his reputation is so bad that we'll lose friends. And, and we don't want to lose friends. So I don't think we should have him around. (sighs) I feel guilty about this a little bit, but Max, you know, that homeless guy that begs up at the corner at at Main and Center Street, um, he smells so bad that I don't really want him in my car. Well, maybe he could walk to our house if I invited him. But if you get involved, I mean, when is it gonna stop? I mean. How much do you have to do? And even if he walks, he's going to be in the house. And that's not going to smell very good either. Maybe, maybe I should just stick to like inviting the folks who are already at church. Maybe that would just be easier and simpler and less problematic. I could, we could invite uh, Wanda and Louie over. But you know what? They have so many kids and their kids are so little. They will run all over our house. They will destroy everything in our house. And then it will take us like three hours to pick up the Legos and everything else, because you know them. They take out every single toy you have. And I don't know, it's just, 
It's just too hard. Gwen, she probably would be a good person to have over, but she doesn't have anything stable in her life. Her housing isn't stable. She, she's always asking people for money at church. And if you get involved with someone like that, are they just going to keep asking for more and more and more? And we're not wealthy. You know, we can't, you know, we're not social security. We can't just keep taking care of people like that. Yeah. I think maybe not stable enough for us. And then Vera, you know, we would have Vera over here, but um, she said those bad things about our children back in 1986. And she's, I mean, she's never, never apologized for any of it. You know, and every time I'm around her, I, I just kind of don't know what to say. I mean, we sort of pass each other in the hallway and we say hi, but we say how are you, but we don't mean it, right? We just, we just say, but um, yeah. Samantha, I mean, her own family doesn't think she's stable. So I don't know why we'd want to get involved if her own family doesn't want to get involved. Well, Peter, Peter Hemphill, he's not, he's not a bad sort of a guy, but he's an expert on everything. I mean, if you talk to him, you'd think he was a physicist, a doctor, an epidemiologist, a whiz at financing and investing. And I don't know, I find that exhausting. It's like I don't have a right to have any opinions of my own. I, I, don't, I don't know what to do. Yeah, again, too hard, too awkward. Drexel borrowed the money, never paid it back, never said sorry. I, I can't think of anybody to invite to my cookout. I, maybe I'll call the pastor. I mean, he only works one day a week anyway. He will surely have the time to come over to our house for dinner, but it's sort of late at night to call him, and Jeopardy's going to be on in about 15 minutes anyway, so I think, I think it's couch time for me. You know none of those names were styled on anybody that's here. And I don't suspect that um, anyone here is as close-minded as Stan the Man. But maybe one or two of those categories runs through your mind every once in a while. I'm going to slide this back to the middle. My sense of symmetry demands it. Um, are there folks that you just exclude Refuse to see objectively, maybe due to discomfort of one kind or another. You know, when we pigeonhole people, we make summary judgments 
and exclude them from our lives and perhaps even from God's grace to some extent. But people are much more complex than they appear on the surface. Sometimes I think we subconsciously pigeonhole people so that we just don't have to deal with them because our lives are complex enough and we don't need any more complexity. We might say that that person is irresponsible and always wants special treatment or is selfish and hard to get along with or so politically liberal we can't imagine how they can be Christian or they never stop talking and think they know everything. They're so arrogant or, or I think they might be gay so I'm staying away from them or they drink too much or they're too emotionally needy or they were dishonest back in 1968 or they're too poor, they're always gonna be asking for stuff and I'm not wealthy, they don't fit my schedule. And in other words, they have personal attributes we dislike emotional hang-ups we can't understand or relate to, moral failures that are embarrassing and hard to understand, or opinions that don't align with our moral sentiments or opinions, or they have distasteful practices rooted in either cultural differences or class differences or national differences. How we look at people the internal judgments we make before we ever get to know them very well goes a long way to determine how we will interact with those people. What level will we engage them at? With what degree of commitment will we engage? How much will we invest in this potential friendship? I think if we're honest with ourselves, even after we get to know people, we continue to make internal judgments based on what we know, often making judgments based on our own opinions of how the world should work. We screen people in or out of our lives based on how we judge them, how we value them, how we look at them. People do the same to us. For better or worse, we make choices concerning others, and those choices have a great deal of impact on those people. When I was pastoring in Rhode Island, there was a guy named Charlie who used to come about once a month begging a meal. He didn't have, never had any money, and he would come by and say, hey, it's been a while since you and I had lunch together, right? I don't really know where he lived he was one of those people you'd rather not have riding in your car, right? Because of the sense of smell that accompanied Charlie. But Charlie and I, when he would come over and ask for money for lunch, I'd say, no, I can't give you any money, but I can go out and have lunch with you. So we would go out someplace and together we'd have lunch. And we would usually go to the Chinese buffet because he could eat as much as he wanted to there and fill up for the rest of the day if he wanted to. So Charlie and I would go out. And then one day, I, I don't know how the conversation actually came up, but the Catholic priest in town over at St. Martha and I, where we were good friends, and we had worked on some community projects together, and I, I said something about Char, and he says, oh, I can't stand that guy. I said, why? He says, well, he's such a phony. I just, I can't be around. I thought, well, that's sort of interesting, because this priest was so generous and so kind. He... He was so concerned about hunger in his area that every Sunday 
for the offering, when the ushers came down to receive the offering, they would bring a grocery cart with the ushers right down the center aisle. And the, the grocery cart only had to come in if it wasn't yet full, right? If people filled it up in the lobby before service began, it could stay out there. But if it was not quite full, it had to come down and work its way and follow the ushers to remind people every Sunday that we hadn't done enough to take care of hunger in our area. So this guy is a hugely compassionate man, but for some reason he had a blind spot where Charlie was concerned. And I didn't explore that, but I just thought it's interesting how we can be selective, gracious in some areas, not so gracious in others, or, or maybe we just have trouble with these particular people. And I'm curious how that all comes to pass. I want to talk about the way we view people today, how you look at other people, what judgments you make, perhaps even subconsciously, who you will invite to dinner and who you won't, and why those different categories exist. One of the basic truths of the gospel is this. You and I, we don't deserve to be included. We've received blessings even before we were Christian, and in spite of our failures, Christ loves us. There was a time in our lives when folks reached out to us, embraced us, included us, even though we didn't deserve it. Some of us were messed up. All of us were self-centered and ignorant. Someone looked past our faults and saw what we could become by God's grace and didn't give up on us. Most of all, God did not give up on us. He saw what we became, could become. He reached out in love and transformed us. And at some level, this was a risk on his part. Because the more he reaches out to messed up people, the more the reputation of those messed up people gets laid on him. You know how that works today, we see it. Churches who do messed up things and who damage the reputation of Christ because they haven't yet arrived, but Christ is still willing to take them on, still willing to work with them, still willing to include them. I mean, welcoming people with a bad track record has the potential to invite risk. But this is what the apostle says in Romans 5, verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will someone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. A favorite author of mine, George MacDonald, wrote a poem in A Diary of an Old Soul. It's in the form of a prayer, and these are some of the words from it. Keep me from wrath, let it seem ever so right. My wrath will never work your righteousness. Help me to climb and dwell in pardon's light. Incline my heart to take man's wrongs as you take mine. You might also pray, 
Help me to view the flaws and weaknesses and shortcomings of others in the same way that you, Lord, view my flaws, weaknesses, and shortcomings. I think these two things are always related. Our opinion of ourselves and the way we look at others and judge others are somehow interrelated. When we feel that we deserve special treatment or special privilege because maybe we served God for many years or because we're good moral people or because we avoid obvious sins, especially those that can be seen by others and we have studied the Bible a long time and we've given our tithes and offerings, the minute we start to think that God owes us rather than we owe God, things get messy and quickly out of whack. When we remember that we are constantly and continually indebted to God, that we can never outgive the Lord, that our continued presence in the kingdom of God is by his grace, that God daily demonstrates his patience with us, especially when you consider your own imperfections, when we remember those things, then we are in a place to be used by God and to make proper evaluations of others. I mean, why do you think so often in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, the Lord identifies himself in this way. He says, I am, your God, I am the Lord your God who delivered you from Egypt, who brought you out from Egypt. Why does he always identify, so frequently identify himself with those kinds of words? And the reason's simple. He says, if I didn't bring you out of Egypt, you as a nation would never be born. You would not exist. You are only here because of what I did. Your whole future and existence depends and depended on my action. The nation of Israel was created out of slaves in Egypt. In a similar way, we who were dead in our sins and trespasses were given new life because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. His blood cleansed us. We were made new. And we, our lives became possible because of what Christ did. And continually now we are indebted to Christ. The knowledge that we are continually indebted to Christ should change the way we look at others. More than just changing the way we look at others, and more than just confronting the way we internally judge others, we must now contend with the presence of the Holy Spirit in us who wants to shape the way we think about others. Believe it or not, it took all that time to get to the text. The text is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16 and following. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. 
and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We need a thorough renewing of our minds so that we can see others through the lens of the love of Christ for humanity. I mean, what would your, look, your life look like if you really saw others in the way that Christ sees them? Christ sees all the possibility, all the promise, all the potential that his beloved creation possesses. What if you chose to see in others what Christ saw in you? What if you treated others the way Christ would treat them? I mean, would it be possible for us in that kind of a setting to lose the pigeonholing, to lose the judgment, to lose the condemnation? One devotional author I've been reading recently uh, said that we should pray in this way. Lord, give us a vision of your world as your love would have it. If God chose to remake the world today and to turn us into creatures who would consistently choose to love others, what would that look like? But that is God's desire for his people. God desires us to love others the way he loves them. It's a tall order. As soon as I get to this point in the message, in my mind I'm thinking, okay, now, who is that impossible for? Right, because I'm sure you have people in your life that are extremely difficult, extremely difficult. If your life is like mine, probably a couple relatives, some folks you know, I mean, you say, Lord, there is no way it's humanly possible for me to love fill in the blank, right? Because of what they did or who they are, who they continue to be for the abuses they've caused, it's, it's not possible. And the good news today is, you're right. It's not humanly possible. Not possible to love everyone. We don't have it in us. We've been injured too deeply. But the reality is, even if it's not natural for us, even if it's not possible for us, it will never happen unless we understand and affirm that nothing is impossible for him that he is able to so fill us with his unconditional love for others that he can make it possible for us to love in the way that Christ loves. Only he can make that possible. The scriptures aren't calling you to work hard enough to work it up within you to love other people. They're calling you to open your heart to the Holy Spirit to so fill you that he enables you to love others. That's the only way this can happen. But knowing that that's the only way this can happen is only half the battle. You still have to want it to happen. 
It's not enough to know that I'll never humanly love these people because they're miserable. To know that God can make it possible. I've got to also make the choice to say, Holy Spirit, help me love them. Touch me again by your spirit. Make it possible for me to love beyond my ability. If you refuse to pray for the gift of the Spirit to enable you to love, then it is unlikely that you will ever have the capacity to love those who are objectionable. Because the Holy Spirit is not like a blacksmith who will beat you into the shape that he wants you to have. He doesn't operate that way with us. He doesn't coerce us. The Holy Spirit will gently show us the error of our way. The Holy Spirit will invite us to change. But we must cooperate with grace. We must be open to what the Spirit says. When he says take a step, we've got to take a step. When he challenges, uh, challenges our thinking in the area, we must reconsider. We must ask for his guidance, for his help in understanding how we ought to think, what judgments we ought to make. We must pray that God will give us love for those who are too needy, too loud, too obnoxious, too objectionable, to those who owe us an apology, are too liberal, too conservative. We must pray for the ability to love others as Christ does if we are going to be useful to the kingdom of God. It is not enough to confirm in your mind that you ought to reach out to other people and still not like them. Because the reality is this. If you're trying to reach out to someone with the gospel and you don't like them, they're going to know that. They're going to sense that. And they're going to run away screaming, as they should. Because from their mind, this is just one more person in the world trying to get them to think the way someone else wants them to think. It's one more expert telling me what I have to do. And at least in the religion area, I don't have to listen to anybody. I can be my own self. But the reality is, as quickly as people know that you don't like them, they also can sense if you love them. People know who's genuine. You know it by the way they talk to you. They know it by your body language. There's a thousand ways a person knows if you like them. And friends, do me a favor. Don't try to reach out to anyone with the gospel until you first love them with the love of Christ. Because you will do more harm than good if you try to articulate a gospel that does not include love. Because any gospel that does not reflect the love of God for his people is less than the gospel that we have in Scripture. We must pray for an outpouring of the Spirit that so fills us with his love that it changes the way we live. Really, this is the essence of Wesleyan theology and holiness theology. When we talk about the, the, the cleansing from original sin, that, that selfishness that exists in us, this is what the Nazarenes teach, right? 
We teach that the Holy Spirit fills us and excludes, removes, takes out of us that bent towards sinning. That we're no longer self-centered, but we are filled with the love of God which makes it possible for us to love others. And it's that filling with the love of the Holy Spirit for others that changes us, that makes us different, that makes us new. And that's why we even have a church of the Nazarene, because we believe that the love for others that Christ gives us should be expressed to a world so that Christ can use us as his ambassadors to demonstrate that he came to save the world, to love them. What does it mean where the Apostle Paul says, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation? It means simply this. God is counting on us to spread the good news that all of our friends, all of our neighbors, all of our family members are loved by God. And that whoever will enter the kingdom is welcome to do so. Will we be agents of that good news? It's my prayer that this place will be such a safe place that no one will ever feel shame just for coming. But we will accept people, we will love people well, and we will always remember that conviction is the job of the Holy Spirit, and we let him do his job. We do our job, love others. He does his job, administering the transforming grace of God so that folks don't stay in their sins, but rise above that, having been forgiven by Christ. We do our job by articulating the grace of God so that people have the freedom to recover from addictions and hurts and habits and all those kinds of things that Christ wants to do for his people. Our job is to be the welcoming committee into the kingdom so that God can do his work. And then we support and encourage link arms with our brothers and sisters in Christ so that we can all know the full healing of Jesus Christ. I think if we see this church as a hospital for the sick, filled with people who have various problems and difficulties, but all of whom have the opportunities to receive grace, grace from God and grace from one another, then we will see God create something here that is even more special than he has created up till now. I mean, you and I know this is already a special place, that God has done miraculous things here across generations, but God wants to do greater things here. He wants to use us in greater ways. And the pathway to the future that God has planned for us is paved with love. Will you invite the Spirit to fill you with this kind of love? Will you invite the Spirit to give you a vision of your world as Christ's love would have it? Let me pray with us as the band comes to, or as Aaron comes to do a final song with us. Heavenly Father, We're glad that we're not like Stan. But if we're honest, 
we still make subconscious judgments. We sometimes keep your love to ourselves. We still wrestle loving some people. And Lord, we need a new touch of your spirit. We need you to fill us with your spirit. We need to send, surrender our judgments to you and allow you to direct our steps, allow you to direct our invitations, allow you to determine who it is we link arms with for your glory. Help us to see the world around us through your eyes. Give us that perspective, we pray. Do more in us than we can ask or imagine. We know you're able, that nothing is impossible for you. Heal us, gracious God, and enable us to be your people. Pray this in your name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing, let it be said of us. Let it be said of us that the Lord was our passion, that with gladness we bore every cross we were given, that we fought the good fight, that we finished the course, knowing within us the power of the risen Lord. Let the cross be our glory, and the Lord be our song, by mercy made holy, by the Spirit made strong. Let the cross be our glory, and the Lord be our song, till the likeness of Jesus be through us made known. Let the cross be our glory, and the Lord be our song. Let it be said of us, we were marked by forgiveness, we were known by our love, and delighted in meekness, we were ruled by His peace. Let the cross be our glory and the 
now may the Lord give you a vision of this world as he would have it. And may you see the world through his eyes of love, that he may be glorified in our lives now and always. Amen. Go in peace.